This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 63 is Jungian analyst and music-centered psychotherapist Joel Craker in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Mr. Craker began studying music composition and guitar performance at the University of Manitoba and then went on to complete the graduate program in music-centered psychotherapy at Wilfrid Laurier University near Toronto, earning a master's degree in music therapy. He later received a second master's degree in ethnomusicology from the University of Alberta. An award-winning singer-songwriter and guitarist, he spent 10 years traveling the world as an international recording artist, releasing albums on Universal True North Records. He has won awards for Pop Album of the Year and Film Score of the Year, and was nominated for Songwriter of the Year, along with Sarah McLaughlin, Nellie Furtado, and Ian Tyson. He studied cognitive behavioral therapy with the pioneer of mindfulness-based CBT, Zindel Siegel, through the University of Toronto's Faculty of Medicine, and later spent five years training as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, where he earned his diploma in analytical psychology. Mr. Craker has served as a board member of the C.G. Jung Society of Vancouver and lectures regularly at the Jung Societies of both Vancouver and Victoria. He is the founding international workshop facilitator of a new psychotherapeutic method called Archetypal Music Psychotherapy, which integrates core Jungian principles within a clinical improvisation framework. His new book, Jungian Music Psychotherapy, When Psyche Sings, published by Routledge in 2019, was 25 years in the making. It was the Shambhala Online Book of the Month for April, and it is the subject of our talk today. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, May 27, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks for this opportunity. So we're here today to talk about your book, Jungian Music Psychotherapy, When Psyche Sings. But first, I'd like for you to share with us a little bit about your background. You were a musician, and you were performing and touring And then somehow you became a Jungian analyst, and I'm sure that was a long road. Well, it was a a long, I would say a circuitous road. Um, You know, it happens in little bits here and there, and then all of a sudden there you find yourself having been at it for a while. Um, So it's not a linear path at all, but somehow I've found recently, since the book got published, in looking back at sort of the origin of some of these ideas, each piece of that journey um, really added and contributed to my ability to see and hear the way I I see and hear now in terms of the themes of music and and psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I found that the original composition degree um, helped me to to see how composers frame um, music, which is actually something I utilize now in my analytic frame, in in my mind while I'm in the analytic chair. Um, and ethnomusicology is is about how uh, the meaning of music within cultures, which is, I think, very important as well in terms of how people understand music and, and what it means to them. 
Um, and then, of course, Jungian, uh, Jungian analysis um, is the final piece, I guess, of the frame that's really helped me understand how psyche responds to music, um, both both literally, but also on a, symbolically. So you were a recording artist, and then you became a music therapist, and then you decided to become a Jungian analyst? I guess that yeah, I guess that's the way it went chronologically. Yeah, for me, it kind of feels like uh, a transcend and include kind of okay. <laughs> uh, aspect because it doesn't feel like they were uh, one piece and then the other piece. But yeah, mm-hmm. chronologically, that's how it worked. Um, I was actually a music. I was I I was in a at the University of Alberta uh, in a ethnomusicology master's degree, which I completed. But actually, I was also in a PhD program there, and and I dropped that to 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 follow the recording artist path because the two were kind of neck and neck um and i was just getting signed to true north records and so yeah i dropped the academic the phd uh, program in order to to travel and and uh, play music and record how did the desire to look at music therapeutically come about well that's that's been around for a long time. Just recently, actually, I found a paper that I wrote 25 plus years ago in my during my first degree, um, and the paper was called Jungian Music Therapy. And I'd completely forgotten about this paper. I forgot that I even thought about these things at all. But for some reason, I, I wrote a paper about that way back then. So that's kind of why I, I imagine that these ideas started there. You know, as a composer, as a fledgling composer, I was already starting to imagine um, what this could mean for, um, I don't know if I would have used the word psyche at the time, mm-hmm. but what it can mean for somebody who's suffering. You know, how, what music can, can, can be for somebody if they enter into the music. I, I like to think of it that way, not, not only coming in contact with the music, but entering into the music and what can happen to somebody who's um, has suffering in their life circumstance, in their relationship, within themselves, intrapsychically, and what can music be for them? Mm-hmm. You know, and then when I eventually studied ethnomusicology, I started to realize there's a long history, probably as long as human history itself, of music being a healing force in human beings' lives. Mm-hmm. So would you tell us what the difference is between sound and music? For instance, right now, I mean, I live in Chicago, and there is a truck backing up in the alley right outside my window. It's making that beeping sound. That is a rhythmic noise, a rhythmic sound. Is that music? Yeah, so that's a. I think that's a really excellent question. Um, there isn't an obvious answer to that, except I, I have a little equation <laughs> that I like to okay. use, which is uh, music equals sound plus time. Um, and I kind of, um, I would, I would say John Cage, the composer John Cage, <laughs> kind of helped me understand that one because um, whatever happens in time can be perceived as music. You know, the raw sound. Raw, unorganized sound can be perceived as music, and I would say, um, at best, it is. Uh, I say that because 
um, well, I'll just say it this way. John Cage has a piece of music called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds where the, the, the piano player goes up to the uh, onto the stage in front of a huge audience, right? And they're all sitting there silently and he sits down, he or she sits down, and they don't play a single note. And four minutes and 33 seconds later, they get up and walk off the stage to tremendous applause. And so it, the idea is that whatever happens is the music depending on how you perceive it. I think there's a big hint there. That's a kind of a koan, you know, but it's a, I think there's a big hint there about what music is in its perception of it. The way I like to talk about it is perception itself of music is a creative act, not a receptive one. So it's how we perceive and how creative and symbolic we can get in, we can be in our, uh, in our listening. That's what organizes sound into uh, music. So this, I don't mean to leave out the composer. Of course, the composer actually does organize sound and they probably consider themselves to be the creator of the music. Mm -hmm. But actually the listener, I'm, I'm proposing in the book that actually it's the listener that really creates the perceptive experience. So when you're listening to that beeping of that truck backing up, there's all kinds of information there. It can tell you what time of day it is. It can maybe even tell you what day it is just by listening to that. Um, I, I call it the auditory uh, digestive system. You know, the auditory, the sound comes in and we actually digest the sounds into meaning. Just as the digestive system turns food into, you know, di differentiates it into proteins mm -hmm. and, and carbohydrates and waste, right? But actually our auditory digestive system takes sound in all the time, all day long, and even in the night, and it processes it into meaning. So there's literal meaning, that's a truck, but there's also symbolic meaning, potentially. So now, do you differentiate between sounds and music? I do, um, because um, maybe I'll draw on a little bit of Buddhist <laughs> uh, yeah, philosophy here, but, but the idea of the relative and the absolute, right? On the mm -hmm. relative level, um, music is actually a relative concept. It's something that uh, my dog, for example, doesn't um, experience music in the same way I do. It, these are sound triggers for my dog. Um, but I appreciate certain kinds of sounds as music that you know other, other non-human animals wouldn't, for example. So it's not absolute music. It's not music for everybody and, and for everything. It's, it, you know, in a certain moment, music can be music for me. Okay. Uh, so for example, um, there's a guy named, uh, a composer named Luciano Berrio, who actually said, um, music is anything one listens to when one is intending to listen to music. So that takes a moment to sort of take that in, but that's, yeah. that kind of opens up the, the definition. But then there's also like, I don't mean to be, um, you know, naive or silly about this. It can get sort of absurd if we start talking about it that way, because there's also what I consider to be the right music at the right time. And that's a very important uh, concept for me when I talk about music, because the right music at the right time can have all kinds of impact on us. You know, people might say it opens my heart. It helps me to feel. I, uh, it, it opens my mind. I, I feel connected to the world or, or, you know, this kind of experience. And I think we've all had experiences like this where it's the right music at the right time. 
the music music that we can't turn into mere entertainment or wallpaper or uh, we can't block it out because it's important to us. That's a different kind of experience. And that's that's one that I really um, I think that that's one of the most potent aspects of music as opposed to raw sound. I'd like to know how you worked as a music therapist. And then after you became a, a Jungian analyst, how that changed. Mm hmm. Well, there's many different ways of working as a music therapist. And the reason why I say music-centered psychotherapy instead mm -hmm. of music therapy usually is because music therapy um, can include all sorts of forms of what I, of what I consider kind of literal uh, uses of music. Um, so working with folks on the autism spectrum and working with nonverbal patients, um, all of this I, I did a lot of in my music-centered psychotherapy career. Mm -hmm. um, the, this is kind of the bread and butter of music therapy in the Western world. Uh, and so I did a lot of that, but actually I found that what I really wanted was, and I didn't know this at the time, but, but Jungian psychology helped me realize this. What I really needed was an analytic frame. I needed to be able to um, perceive what was happening in the musical interaction, the musical in relationship with my patient. I needed to be able to look at this symbolically and take a, what Jung would call a symbolic attitude, mm -hmm. rather than literalizing. Literal, an example of literalizing, I think, and this is not this is not a critique. Okay. But uh, but um, one way of working in a more literal way is um, in, is a very medical model. So, for example, um, quantitatively looking at how many times does this patient um, uh, make eye contact in, this, in within a period of three minutes of music. You know, that's a very quantitative way. And a lot of people work that way. I didn't find that interesting enough for me personally. I wanted to know more about what was happening uh, psychologically and um, interpersonally and relationally and in terms of the field. You know, the, the interpersonal field was what was interesting to me. Um, and that requires some uh, thought about transference. What's happening inside me as the analyst? What's mm -hmm. happening inside them as the human being? you know, a non-pathologized human being. Right. Um, that's what really got interesting to me. So that's how I started to work as a music therapist quite early. And only when I eventually did the Jungian training did I realize, wow, this is really classic Jungian analytical psychology here that I've been trying to do. Mm. So, so that was so helpful for me to bring Jung into the room, you know, and actually, um, well, actually literally go to the rooms he, he was in, uh, in, in, uh, in Kuznacht and learn um, how he perceived these interactions. Yeah. So how did that happen? You were born in Canada and you currently reside in Canada, but you trained in Zurich. Mm-hmm. Well, that another circuitous route. I ended right. up in Denver, actually. I, okay. I studied for a, while, a little bit in Denver at the Institute there, just as they were, um, the Denver Institute was, I think, breaking away from the IRSJA uh, to form their own uh, institute. And I really enjoyed the work uh, that I did in, in Denver. But um, long story short, I realized I needed to be in uh, in, in Kusnacht. I, I, yeah, <laughs> it, it is kind of a long story, but, but there's an image to here that might be helpful. There, there was a, I got to Denver one, one time for one of the, um, uh, semesters and there was a snowstorm and I couldn't get from my hotel three blocks away mm -hmm. to the actual place where this happened. And it was canceled anyway, because of the snowstorm. And, uh, I spent that time Skyping some people, 
um, about their time in Kusnacht. And, and I was thinking like, you know, what, what is that like over there? Because right. it took me forever to get from Victoria to Denver. And I found out it's actually just the same logistically to get to Kusnacht. So I, I started thinking, okay. And, and then I had a number of dreams, you know, all youngins will say this, right. but it's true. Right. I had a number of dreams that kind of verified for me. Yep. That's the place to be. And, uh, they were right. So did you travel back and forth or did you live there? I traveled back and forth. Um, the Kusnacht, the, the Institute in Kusnacht has a, an international program. Mm -hmm. So it allows you to continue your professional practice. Like I was a, already a psychotherapist at that time, had a professional practice uh, on the West Coast of Canada. So it, it allowed me to continue my practice and then travel there two or three times per year uh, for about a month at a time. And, uh, and, and then continue that way and then continue with a supervisor, um, in, at, in my home city, uh, and then continue online in a bunch of ways, uh, doing the work online. So it's, it felt very immersive, but I didn't have to live for the entire five years in Kuznacki. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Jung and what your experience was of him in Kusnacht. In the foreword to the book, uh, Dr. Mark Winborn, who has been a guest on this podcast in episodes 6 and 36, he says, Jung himself had an ambivalent relationship with music. Jung recognized the emotional and therapeutic significance of music, but personally found it to be so emotionally activating that he discontinued listening to music. And I could so relate to that because I too find it to be so emotionally activating. So what was your experience of Jung's relationship with music? Yeah, that that's uh, something that was on my mind the whole time that I was there um, because I, I kind of had this personal agenda you know, that question is kind of one of my personal agendas going into the program. And so I got a chance to talk to some people about that very explicitly that I feel very grateful for. Um, I, uh, I talked to uh, Martin Kalf when I was studying some sand play uh, work with him. He's the son of Dora Kalf and um, talked to him about uh, music in some ways, but actually uh, through the process of sand play and also his Buddhist background and some stories that he told me about um his mother's experiences with sound because she would play the piano sometimes with her her patients which i didn't know before and and ended up talking to a lot of people about uh their experience of of music within the uh therapeutic space eventually i talked to jung's grandson um who just passed away i guess last year and he actually told me some stories about Jung directly with music um, and his experience with music. Was it Dieter Baumann? Dieter Baumann. Yeah, sorry. Thank you for remembering that. Yeah, Dieter Baumann. Um, and actually, Dieter Baumann was a piano player. Like, he played, the key, he played keyboard. And so he told me a story of playing keyboard for his at his grandfather's birthday party. And um, he also told some stories about Jung talking about listening to his patients as music, which kind of blew my mind because yeah. that's really progressive kind of thought, you know, way back in those days. Nobody was, the, music therapy hadn't been uh, invented yet mm -hmm. as a field, and nobody was really thinking or talking about music that way, as far as I can tell, especially in the, um, in the psychotherapeutic world. Uh, so it seemed that Jung was able to hear and listen that way. Um, there are some stories in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections about Jung and his experience and perception of music 
you know, hearing sounds around his uh, tower in Bollingen. Um, and he tells these stories to Anili Yaffe in, in the book, mm-hmm. in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, um, and how they're kind of like, re- I call it musical reverie, but they're kind of like uh, visions, almost like musical visions that he had, where he wasn't sure if they were waking dreams or if he was really hearing actual literal sound or or not. And it turns out that actually Jung had a um, an overgrowth in the bone in one of his ears, um, which he, he mentioned in a, in a letter to Serge Moreau, uh, or, or was it to Serge Moreau? Or, there was a letter where he talks about this overgrowth of, of this, this bone in his ear, which caused kind of almost auditory hallucinations. I don't know if he used that exact word, but he heard sounds that were almost like um, extra musical sounds. And he learned to use that for his own benefit. It's almost like he was listening in rather than listening out you know, listening to his own inner world right. in a kind of way. Uh, so this is the kind of mind that that Jung seemed to have in terms of his relationship with music. And in terms of what uh, Dr. Winborn was mentioning, um, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, it seems that Jung took music so seriously, mm-hmm. like took sound so seriously on an archetypal level that he was so sensitized to it that he felt if it wasn't um, treated, I would say, reverently, you know, enough or, or carefully or enough or cautiously enough by the performer or the composer um, he, or, or the environment. I think he found that tremendously irritating. Yeah. Um, you know, and many of us do. What I think I, I would maybe this is going being too bold here, but to, I would say that Jung uh, maybe missed a little bit of an opportunity in a way <laughs> to utilize his sensitivity there instead of kind of uh, not exploring music. You know, I suggest in the book that maybe uh, he would have had created the, the, the red album instead of the red book yes. um, and gone into the sounds that he was capable of hearing and the ways he was capable of perceiving them. I would love to hear that album. You know, I would love to hear his thoughts and ideas about his, about the sounds in his life. There's something that I studied before I found Jungian psychology called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, which mm-hmm. says that we are either, I mean, it, it puts us in these boxes. We are either visual, auditory, or I think it's tactile feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it says that uh, as a society, we are for the most part visual, right? So mm-hmm. Jung painted and he talked about dream images and and worked on active imagination so it was more of a visual thing for him what do you say about that do you find that some people are more visual than they are auditory well there's this thing called the mcgurk effect which um is an i what i would call an evolutionary mistake in a way where we highlight the visual over the auditory and you can you can watch little youtube videos on this um to you know when you have like a visual image of somebody's mouth saying a word and then you change the sound from a p to a b for example Mm -hmm. we will we will note we will hear it as the sound that the lips are doing rather than the sound that we're actually hearing 
So this is called the McGurk effect. And I would say it's probably an evolutionary experience that we needed at one point. You know, you got to be able yeah. to to see what's coming to keep yourself safe. That saber-toothed tiger, you know, that idea. But since we don't really have to worry about saber-toothed tigers so much anymore, I would say we might actually be in a transition where we, um, as a you know, as a human race, might actually be moving more in the direction of um, a more subtle and nuanced experience of sound. Um, I hope so, actually, that, you know, when we close our eyes and listen, which in, when I do workshops like archetypal music psychotherapy workshops, I try to get people to close their eyes if they're comfortable doing it because we hear better. We just hear better. It's, it's almost like we like it's almost like wearing those VR glass, the virtual reality glasses. You know, you put those on and you look around. But if you close your eyes and look around, it's like that experience because the, the visual happens even with our eyes closed. We start to perceive as if it's, it's like dreaming. You know, the music can take us to maybe it's getting the auditory, comp, uh, you know, the auditory uh, neurological components going. But somehow we actually do perceive visuals even when we're just listening. Mm -hmm. That can be utilized within an archetypal music psychotherapy setting. Um, the reason I think that's really important is, is as soon as we, even right now, as you and I are saying this to each other and the listeners maybe are hearing this idea, if they take this on, if we take this on um, and, and think about this for a moment, that we can change our perception of sound just by realizing um, that we're biasing in the direction of, of the visual. It's interesting because I'm thinking about when music television, when MTV came about, and it used to just be um, dating myself here, but I would buy the 45, you know, the single on right, just one right. disc. And then when MTV and VH1 came out, it was all about the music video that went along with the song. And sometimes I didn't like that. It wasn't yeah. my idea of what that song was about. Right. Video killed the radio star, right? Exactly. That's the, that's the idea. Exactly. But you talk about sound as a symbol and music as being symbolic and that you wrote this book because there was that aspect of Jungian analysis kind of missing, right? Mm -hmm. That it wasn't being dealt with, that analytical psychology wasn't really dealing with music. And it's such a huge part of so many people's lives, all different yeah. kinds of music. Yeah, it's true. So let's talk about how music heals, how it can yeah. be a healing force in people's lives. Right. Well, the starting point for me is that there is a relationship between uh, the, what I call musicking. It's a, a term, but the, the realm of music and the dream and dreaming. I think this is a helpful starting point um, because we all dream. Right. And and. Um, the idea that dreaming is happening in a, in a symbolic form that we're all kind of willing to accept to some degree, mm -hmm. I'm suggesting that musicking or being within a musical environment, creating it, thinking about it, imagining it, talking about it, listening to it, all those, you know, composing, all those different kinds of ways of being in contact in, within a musical field, um, a lot of what happens in dreaming is also on board when we're in a musical environment. I think that's an important starting point to kind of make that, gener to generalize that over. And then 
I think also music, the musical field or the musical experience can go even further because it, there's something lucid about it. Um, it can happen while we're awake, obviously. We can uh, change our experience of it through how we listen. Um, and it's kind of like a waking dream, but there's even more to it than that because music can, the way I like to say it is music can reveal what we cannot yet see. So the music is like, the musical field is like a canvas, you know, a blank canvas that what we can't yet see, let's say psyche contents, um, can actually show up in sound before we're conscious of their existence. This is what often happens in, uh, in analytical psychology when there's a music orientation, you know, like with, um, within archetypal music psychotherapy, the way I work, um, the musical experience can actually reveal contents uh, that the ego is not conscious of. So now if the analysand is not the one creating the music, right? So we're not, for instance, when I was five years old, my grandfather bought me a piano because he thought that I should learn and know how to read music and how to play the piano. Mm. So I did. And then I lost interest. And then when I was in maybe junior high school and then high school, I wanted to be part of the marching band. So I learned how to play the flute so that I could be part of that. And then I was also part of the orchestra. So I know how to play some musical instruments. I know how to read music, but I don't produce my own music. I There's certain music that I love to listen to, but I'm not producing it. Does that matter? So I, I really like the way you, you put that. Um, I'm not producing it, so does that matter is the question that the uh, conscious part of someone would ask, mm -hmm. right? The conscious part of someone is, now I'm, I'm let me just uh, reveal here, I'm thinking of Jung's map of the psyche when I'm saying this. Okay. So, you know, the, this, this classical map of the psyche that Jung created, which is this kind of the circle, this mandala kind of circle, and then there's the ego as the center of consciousness, and the self is the center of the total personality. So there's these, there's these two centers. Well, the ego, the, the center of consciousness, would ask a question like that. I'm not producing this, so what's going on here? And it's probably right, you know. But then there's this other center of the personality that doesn't ask that question because it's more involved with the perception. It's, it's involved, it's completely in, involved with the perception of the sound. So I would go back to what I, in the book I call principle number one, which is perception is a creative act. So I would challenge the ego's idea, I'm not creating it, and I would say, well, in some ways you are. In some ways you as listener are actually doing something with the music in your perception of it. This is kind of, sometimes this is a bit of an abstract idea, but uh, but it's kind of a main point here, yeah, yeah. here um, that when we perceive, we could say this in a very scientific materialistic way, right? This The air, even right now, you and I, as we're talking, we're, we shake the air and the air uh, goes into our, the shaking air goes into our ear canal and shakes the cilia, the little hairs in our ear. And then it's transformed through four kind of alchemical transformations into an electronic electrical impulse, you know, and into a, a physiological impulse and eventually turns into mental imagery. 
mental images that are thoughts and ideas and physical feelings and and meaning actually mm-hmm. uh, which is where it gets quite mysterious what i'm talking about is that last piece how does sound turn into meaningful experience for us within ourselves this is now we're talking very symbolically nobody has an answer to this in the scientific world mm-hmm. nobody knows how this happens because now we're talking about consciousness itself so i would say that that piece which is what you're doing when you listen to music or when you experience music, you are creating something. Your psyche is, your self-regulating psyche is very much involved in the creation of meaning from the sound that you're putting yourself in contact with. Okay. Does that make some sense or how does that that It makes a lot, yes, it makes a lot of sense. And sometimes I have to ask questions as if, I'm always torn between reading my guest's book because if I read the book and understand it, I won't be curious during the interview because I already know it. So I know too much. I'm trying to put myself in the listener's position. and, And I've been doing this so long and I'm so used to reading people's questions on social media that and people write me emails and private messages and they ask me really basically the same types of questions over and over again and so I try to ask for them yeah right right Right. exactly so well let me let me make a comment about what you just said right now actually you know print another principle that I talk about in the book is called mastery versus expression the mastery orientation versus the expression orientation. And I think what you just said, what you just said it so well, to read the book and to know these things, to explore them before the interview, it puts you more in the direction of a mastery orientation. And then it's hard to swim backstream to an expression orientation. But this is exactly what we're, the, the position we're all in when we have, when we know anything about music, for example, mm-hmm. um, when I when I work with someone who who um, has a story like yours, where they were, let's say, forced into, or you know, a, a, there's a should there, you should play right. the piano, you know, in those early days, and then you resist a little bit, and then eventually maybe you find your way back, or you don't, but then you know too much, you're not fresh, like a total beginner's mind, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but the beginner's mind is such a potent place for perception of music or anything right but this is actually one of the pieces within the uh, uh within analytical psychology this is such an important ability to 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 develop is the ability to uh let the ego set like the setting sun you know like we do every night when we go into the dreaming world to let that ego set a little bit so we can go back into this open curious um available almost naive perceptive space like a child i think you said it really well i had asked you how music can be a healing force in people's lives well let's talk a little more about that um i talked about the starting point of music and dreaming and how they relate to each other uh and i think a lot of your listeners if they have any background in Jungian psychology which i imagine a lot of them do mm-hmm. uh, they they already know the the healing force of dreaming and and working with dreams and maybe they work with their own dreams well a lot of that can be translated over to the experience of music so when we look at um at, at music or when we listen to music that's mixing metaphors when we listen to music and experience it in this open kind of way um, we it can become a mirror for us so parts of us that are suffering 
parts of us that we have pathologized, you know, my depression, my anxiety, my trauma, my grief, my difficulties, my addiction, a lot of this can actually be um, mirrored back from the musical field. Uh, so in, in a way, the music, the, the canvas of the musical field, the dynamic, open, alive musical field can actually be a place where a lot of that suffering can uh, uh, can be projected into through playing music, through listening to music, experiencing music, talking about music, imagining music, composing music. And these are all ways, the ways I just mentioned, I, I work with all of these within the consulting room. We sometimes make music together. We sometimes listen to music together. We sometimes imagine music. We sometimes compose music. Uh, I had done an episode with Ruth Amon, who is the curator at the Jung Institute of the Picture oh. Archive. And we were talking about the paintings and the drawings that were done by Jung's and Alessands and also Yolanda Jacobi's and Alessands. And I struggle. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a painter. I'm, I'm not artistic in any way. And so that was difficult for me when I was in analysis to, to draw, to express myself that way. I did it anyway, but those pieces aren't anything that I would like, you know, the public to see. Mm -hmm. And with music as well. Um, now, some people I think in analysis would be comfortable composing music or lyrics, and we haven't gotten to that yet. I wanted to ask you about the differences between the actual sounds, the music, what I would call music and the lyrics. So my, my question is, if we don't produce the artwork, or we don't produce, I'm going back to what I said earlier, the music, then it is still therapeutic to use somebody else's right mm -hmm. to express yourself yeah so again th this idea that we are not creating i would i would really challenge that idea mm -hmm. um and that's that's a big move i yeah, think i'm still not getting it clearly right? right and 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 it takes i would say that for me i'm not sure if i still get it myself but it's taken me years to start to to hear this way and listen this way okay. like to i'm going to say it this way to take responsibility for the way i hear it's taken me a long time oh, um, i think it's very common for us to feel like for example if we go to a concert and if we don't like the music we can quite easily say that's bad music i don't like that music mm -hmm. they're making bad music up there but I don't really listen that way anymore. Um, for me, that's reductive, and it's kind of like a sign instead of a symbol, you know, like how Jung talked about a sign, like a stop sign says one thing, it's very reductive and thin, but a symbolic approach is what's actually happening here in the interaction between me as listener and the performer as, uh, as expressor, so the one who's expressing the sound. What's happening transferentially between us right now? What's happening in this relationship? What kind of relationship are we having? What, what elements and variables of my own life are being included right now mm -hmm. in the way I hear the parameters of my ability to experience this sound? You know, and in the, in the music industry, when I was in the music industry, um, it, it's, it's very painful for an artist to not be able to hear this way 
because they hear their producer who shuts down and rejects a lot of their music um, because it's not commercial enough, for okay, example. Right. You know, but the 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 commercial world is listening um, for very specific things. Is this going to be a hit song? Is this going to be a cha-ching moneymaker? Right. That's a very small and thin channel of listening. That is so strange to me. So it has to appeal to the masses. And, and how do you they bet. know that it will? Oh, well, this is exactly the same as any business, right? Any business that works within a capitalist framework, um, which most of them do, is, is going to be working from the same perspective. What I'm suggesting is that shuts down, vastly shuts down the ability to hear and experience what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's extremely reductive. It's a small channel, and then you have to fit through that channel. Um, and, and, and a lot of, I would say almost every, um, artist that's, um, in a commodified, uh, field is, is, is trying to get through that little thin little channel. Um, and that's, they have to, they have to shut down their own, um, perceptive mechanism. You know, they have to shut down their psyche in a way, which I think is very damaging, which is probably the reason I work with a lot of artists. I mean, a lot of, a lot of musicians end up uh, in in a consulting room somewhere, and a lot of them end up in mine um, for that reason. Yeah, I, I remember when American Idol first started. I have no idea what year it was, and these these contestants would come on just so raw and authentic and unique and different, and mm. then as the process went further and they narrowed it down and down and down and got toward the end, they changed them, they polished them up. They took, it's like they stripped away what made them unique and they homogenized everybody. And I would watch that happen. And I eventually just stopped watching the show um, because of that. And I remember one gentleman who won, I think his name was Taylor. He was prematurely gray and he was just so authentic. And then by the time he won and put out his first album, he was unrecognizable to me. Yeah, that what you're describing, I think, is the opposite of individuation. Yeah. Yeah. And this wouldn't be a Jungian conversation if we didn't look at the other side. We talked about how music can heal, but music can also harm. Yeah, that's a very important point. Um, I would say that's most of the training uh, in a gradu- on a graduate level in terms of music-centered psychotherapy. Most of the training is is that point: um, how not to do any harm, how to um, be ethically responsible in your use of music. Basically, music has such an a potent ability to go past defenses and resistance so quickly that it can take us to places we actually don't want to go. Yeah. So there are some uh, ways of working that are are really questionable um, if they don't take into this take this into consideration. Um, but I think we all experience this, you know, in certain ways when we hear a piece of music that takes us to a part of our life that we don't want to visit. Right. And we, we're there. Like you hear that song on yeah. someone else's car radio as they drive by, and it only takes a few bars of that song, and bang, you're back there. Mm-hmm. You know, and you don't want to be there. So if there's a traumatic memory, you know, at worst, if there's a traumatic memory, uh, that's a landmine. That's a musical landmine, and you don't want to be stepping on those landmines. So there's a lot of work at the beginning of an analysis 
um, where we work with, um, you know, what's your musical autobiography? What's your history? What is what are these? What are some important songs for you? What are some important pieces of music for you or sounds for you? Uh, what do they mean at that time of your life? That that kind of work is very important to lay the groundwork. So you do that. That's what you ask of your analysis. I, I do if it goes there. Um, I never I never really introduce music unless it comes up naturally. But I'll, I'll tell you, maybe because of who I am and my own background, but it comes up an awful lot. I'm sure. Yeah. So as you know, we have gotten into the music of BTS here on this podcast. Right. With the author of Jung's Map of the Soul, Dr. Murray Stein. And when I had tweeted that you were going to be my guest this week, I had asked for questions from the BTS army. And we've chosen one. And I was wondering if we could look at that right now. Sure. This is from particularly unone, who asks in RM's persona, RM is one of the members, one of the seven members of BTS. And they're referring to his song intro persona. They ask the song celebrates the different versions of the self. What do you think of this? Would this acceptance lead to a more coherent view of the self or a complication that unsettles the self? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. Um, and uh, I did watch the video for that as well. So not only listen to the song, but um, the video for Persona, which I think adds another element to it. Right. I would say right off the bat, um, I would sort of reiterate something that I said earlier in the interview here, that um, when the composer, when the creator of the music finishes that piece of music and sets it, sends it off into the world, their job is done. And now the job is the listener's job. So... With a music, with a question like this, you know, what about RM? What was RM? We could hypothesize what RM is thinking, was thinking and trying to get across through the song persona. But I think it's actually a much more interesting question, maybe a more symbolic attitude kind of question to ask ourselves, each of us ask ourselves upon each listening of that song, how is my psyche responding to this right now? What are the elements that are involved in why I'm responding this way? What's happening within me at the different domains and levels? My, what's happening to me emotionally? What comes up uh, mentally, uh, psychologically? Um, when I listen to this song, you know, what comes up for me? So in that way, the song kind of becomes an orphan when RM delivers the song to the world. And then it becomes an orphan in a way that we as listener become could become the midwife for, you know, we become the midwife for this, uh, this music that doesn't yet know how to be perceived. And it's in our creative perception of it that we actually uh, take it in. So in terms of the, the theme of persona, which of course, uh, I think uh, Dr. Murray Stein and, and, and you, Laura, have uh, done some great work working on these things and, and even some writing I think Murray Stein has done mm -hmm. about this particular thing and, and BTS's music. It's very interesting what he's done. Um, so without saying what he's already said, this element, this Jungian idea about persona um, is, is really the externalized face 
you know, persona is the externalized face. It's the face turned toward the world. But that's not necessarily what someone gets from listening to this song. They actually might have something that they experience intrapsychically. So now we're talking about the other center of the personality, which is the self, which is mentioned in the in the uh, in the question. So I don't think the self becomes uh, what was the word they use uh, um, unsettled. I don't think the self actually becomes unsettled because the self is the archetype of wholeness. The teleological direction of the self is toward wholeness. So it takes in anything that comes at it. The ego is the one, the center of consciousness is the one that's going to use defensive strategies, you know, to try to survive and to try to maintain a certain kind of view. The ego is the one that utilizes the persona to get something valuable from the world. You know, we put on a persona like RM did in the video. Uh, you know, all these different personas that RM um, expresses in the video, for example. You know, he emerges from the primordial soup at the beginning. He's in a schoolroom. He's between a bilocated fire on either side of him. He's in a hall of mirrors. Uh, the video is very interesting that way to look at it like a dream. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there are these AI robots all around him, which eventually crumble at the end when he says these words. He sings these words. I just want to give you all the shoulders when you cry. Um, that's the English translation anyway. Um, and, and so there, it's interesting to look at, at how he expresses that, but actually there's something intrapsychic happening for the listener upon each listen. And so I would put this question back in kind of typical Jungian and an analytic form here, instead of answering the question, I put a question back mm -hmm. on this, on this listener, on this uh, listener, uh, particularly on one, uh, I would, I would say the next question might be what's happening within myself as I listen to this care holding in my field of view, the theme of persona, all that I know and think about RM and feel about RM and also beyond just my ego view, beyond just my persona view, you know, which is kind of what happens in the, in the video at the end, all the personas crumble. To the ground. There's a message in that. That's the end of the dream, you know, the end of the image. So the personas crumble, um, and and maybe there's something about uh, something about authenticity there, or something about coherence, which is in the in the question. A word in the question, I think, is a very important word. Something about um, acceptance of self. Uh, something uh, unified and continuous to a more coherent view of the self. Something more coherent. Yeah, yeah, maybe, perhaps, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. all very symbolic, so we can't uh, settle on an answer. This is another thing. The ego wants an answer. Right. You know, the self doesn't care about answers. Mm. It just keeps living into the larger question. Always, always, always. There is also the question of lyrics. And some music have lyrics and some don't. Mm -hmm. Does that matter when you're working with music for healing, or you're working in analysis with music, what about the lyrics? What about music with lyrics and music without lyrics? And then there's also, let me just add another layer to that, lyrics in a different language, such as the case with BTS. A, a lot of the time in the raps, I have no idea what they're saying, but I mm -hmm. can still feel it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Well said. Yeah, there's a lot of feeling there. It, it really gets right in contact with something. Um, I mean, I'm going to use my own words here, sort of primal and powerful and potent and alive, right? There's something that just goes straight there, like rhythm. Rhythm can do that. Rhythm can do exactly what you were just saying um, non-English lyrics can do or non-English rap can do. It gets right to those centers of, uh, you know, those primal sort of centers. It's very, very powerful how it does that. One way I would frame, I mean, you asked some really interesting questions there, all, all kind of in a bundle. Um, one way I frame it for myself is a logos oriented language versus an eros orientation. Mm. So, you know, words are very logos oriented and, and this is again, no critique. This is just sort of parsing it out so you can get a sense of what the field is, is providing Mm -hmm. here. But a logos orientation, kind of like, um, I I listened to a little bit when you and Murray Stein, Dr. Stein were talking and, um, it's a little bit logos oriented to look at the words and the meaning of the words. Okay. So that's, that's a logos oriented way of, of looking at it. Okay. An eros orientation in my perspective is about relatedness, mm-hmm. relationship, the animated relatedness, you know, and I mean, and I say animated because it's like the anima, the, the, uh, the alive aspect of the relational aspect right there and libido, life energy. So I like to try in session when I'm working with somebody to keep a balance between these two orientations, the logos oriented aspect and the eros orientation. And if one is being neglected, I like to advocate for that. Um, and music is a wonder, especially with, uh, with lyrics, music is a wonderful field that includes all of this. It's so interesting how it manages. I don't even know how this is possible, but it's true about the musical field. It includes all of this logos oriented aspect, you know, and eros orientation somehow, uh, there's order, which is logos orientation and there's, uh, and there's feeling, which is eros orientation. So that's sort of how I would talk, start talking about music and words and how they relate to each other. The other thing I would say about that is um, a lot of the work that I do is, is talk therapy. So it's really just, you know, verbal talk therapy using a lot of words. But I try to listen, as um, Dieter Baumann was, was saying to me about his grandfather, Jung, um, talking about listening to his patients as music. I do the same thing sometimes when I remember to and when I figure out how to, if I can, you know, in a moment, to listen to the words, to the musical qualities of the words. What kind of um, music is this, these words that are being said? Is it, uh, is it a ballad? Is it a, an epic, uh, symphonic piece of music? Is it uh, chaotic? Is it... Uh, you know, for mezzo forte, like these are, you, you can, is there crescendo? Where's the intensity? Where's the consonance dissonance? Uh, where are the cadences? I listen to the words as music. And I think this is a way of blending the logos and eros orientation at its best. When a lyric gets stuck in our head, a part of a sentence, a part of a line of a song mm-hmm. that we just can't shake. That takes me back to sound as a symbol. Mm-hmm. When that happens, I'm always very curious. If the lyrics are poetic and don't make much sense to me, but I cannot get that out of my head, and it just mm-hmm. repeats over and over again, it's trying to tell me something, right? It's something that needs to be unpacked. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jung actually had a word for that. He called it a melodic automatism. When something is stuck in your mind and it won't, when, a, when a piece of music, a phrase or a, or a, a fragment of music is stuck in your mind. And um, he has some he had some stories about this uh, that he's written about. I forget where um, about clients, you know, whistling a song in the in the waiting room of his consulting room. And he ended up knowing the name of that song and bringing that that uh, um, the meaning of that phrase into the uh, consultation. So there's some interesting background backstory there, but yeah, there's something. There's all, they're also sometimes called earworms. I think Oliver Sacks in his book *Musicophilia* talks about earworms, where a piece of music gets sort of stuck in your mind, and it feels kind of obsessive. This sort of hamster right. wheeling obsessive quality, which is very irritating. This little broken record that keeps going round and round mm-hmm. and round, like a like a recurring dream fragment, right? Mm-hmm. Something that keeps on coming back. And, and as you're saying right now, it feels like there's something that wants to be heard. It could very well be that. But I would even um, take a step further back from that and start to ask myself, um, is this obsessive quality about the quality of the obsession or is it actually about the content of the obsessed piece? You know, is the, me- is the meaning here in my attitude um, toward this particular content, or is it, is it something about the content itself? This, uh, to tie this idea into Jung's, uh, classical works, um, this is like the way Jung dealt with dreams. There's this kind of fork in the road with working with a dream fragment, which he called, let's see if I can get this right. He called it objective or subjective. So the subjective view of that piece, and we can apply this to this little recurring piece of music too, is this is about, uh, this is intrapsychic. It's something about myself. Um, and the other one, or oh, actually it's projective. The other one's projective, and that means it's, um, I'm predicting something about the external world. This is about the external world, or it's about myself intrapsychically. We could ask ourselves about that, about this obsessive piece of fragment of music as well. Is it something about that piece? Is there something important about that piece? Should I go listen to that piece or should I explore those contents? Should I Google it? You know, should I look into it? Or is it saying something about the quality of my obsessed attitude toward this within myself? What do you mean by the quality of the obsessed attitude? So um, l- let's see. Basically, what I'm trying to say is the exact same thing that Jung says about dreams. Um, which is the dream can compensate our ego attitude. It can compensate our waking ego stance. So our stance in this regard, what we're talking about right now, this little fragment of music that keeps going round and round and round, our stance is perhaps it's irritating. I want it to go away. It's, It's buzzing around me like a gnat, and I just want it to, I want to just chew it away and get rid of it. You know, this is the attitude, the quality of my attitude toward this obsessive little piece is I want it to go away. That's the, that's what I would call the waking ego stance, Mm -hmm. you know? So maybe it's that attitude that needs transformation. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's that attitude that's, and so the psyche could be just utilizing this little fragment of music to get us in contact with the feeling of this attitude. Do you see what I'm saying? Like a dream does. Yep. If, if that's the case, then it's not really about the content. 
you know on the other hand it might literally be something about that particular content that got lodged in my mind because it has something to say to me and I'm missing the message. I think they're very valuable when that mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. And hard to stay with. What do you mean? Well, it's hard to stay with it with a symbolic attitude, right? Because it gets, it gets um, uh, collapsed into a very reductive experience of this is irritating. I don't like this. I want to get, I want this to go away. Well, when it happens with me, I, I'm so curious about it. What is this trying to tell me? What does this mean? Maybe because of being in analysis for so long, I always wonder what's underneath this. What's the message here? What is this trying to tell me? Wonderful. That's a symbolic attitude. Takes a long time to to get to adopt that attitude and to kind of go there first, um, but that that's generally what happens. And there is something there for me, and so to stick with it and follow it um, because it it catches you. Some of these yeah. lyrics and earlier when we were talking about how music can harm, I I was going through a very very difficult time in my life a few years ago. Probably one of the most difficult periods of time I've ever been through. And when I would go to the grocery store, they play pop music. And it's not always new. Sometimes it's several years old. And I always found it very sad. And I don't like typically I do not like sad music. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel terrible. And I don't want to feel that I don't want to feel bad. I don't want to feel sad. So Every time I'd go to the grocery store, I would just kind of, I would say it out loud. I'm like, this is bullshit. Why are they playing this music? Why do you want to listen to that when you're shopping? I mean, why not play upbeat music? Make people whiz through? I don't know. So uh, I don't know where I was going with this, but I, it it was to the point where I would cry. Mm -hmm. I was reminded of when I had heard you say in a lecture uh, that music can harm. And it kind of turned me off to music for quite some time when I was going through that difficult period. And it wasn't short, it lasted for quite a while. I found it very difficult to listen to really any music because it would touch emotions that were just so raw. Right. That yeah, I couldn't tolerate exactly. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And and actually, I think your your image of, of the grocery store music, I think people probably know, they can almost hear and feel that when you say those words, you know, there's a certain kind of almost a genre of music that's kind of grocery store music. It used to be called elevator music, right? But it's grocery store music. And, um, and, and it's like that it insults the aesthetic, the psychological aesthetic, like it does for you, um, you know, sometimes. I would I would call this uh, in psychologically I would say that's dissonance. It's like psychological dissonance. It's taking me to a place I don't want to go, which is kind of in line with what we were talking about with the harm with how music can harm. It's taking me somewhere like a vehicle, you know. It's kidnapping me. It's throw it's it's gagging me and throwing me into the car and driving me somewhere with a blindfold, and I don't want to go there. And, and it's doing that through sound. Isn't that amazing yes. that it actually can do that? So one way I think of working with that is um, uh, it's difficult, very difficult, but ho- um, Jung's idea about holding the tension yeah. of, of a dissonant experience. 
um, very difficult to do sometimes, especially in a, a, a difficult life circumstance where you're already raw, like you said, and, and feeling vulnerable and actually vulnerable, you know, to your own um, inner world. And, uh, and to be able to take an ego stance that can hold the tension, uh, that's, that's the recommendation, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's said reverentially, you know, yes. it's not to be said as if this is easy, but it's very, dis uh, very difficult, but it's very necessary sometimes because dissonance, and I'm, I'm using the word dissonance because it's a musical term, right? Dissonance or consonance, that psychological dissonance being taken somewhere that feels like harm or feels like, um, a painful place, maybe, maybe that's the, maybe one has more power and, um, uh, one's ego stance has more power than, than they know because the music probably in the grocery store isn't actually going to harm in a way that you can't recover from. Mm -hmm. I I'm hoping I'm right about this now. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sort of, I'm improvising here. Right. Okay. But, but I think, I think that this may be the kind of frame that might be helpful for someone to take what what Jung called uh, Job's stance. You know, in the in the answer to Job, he says the ego stance sometimes has to take a tremendously powerful, rock solid stance against the um, the larger forces that are way way too big and and stormy and dangerous. Which in in the Job story is basically God and the devil. You know, and in a way, there you are in the grocery store being taken, surrounded by this music and taken somewhere like Job was taken. I mean, to be overly melodramatic here um, and to and the recommendation is to hold that stance and and somehow stay uh, in that center point, uh, in that central place somehow in this. And I'm going to say in the center of your perception. You know, there you are in the, uh, the, the, the vegetable aisle in the grocery store and to literally take that stance and, and to even say to yourself, um, this is a kind of call to adventure here because I'm being taken somewhere. Yeah. I can leave. I can use an avoidance strategy and just simply leave. And I don't get my tasks done or I can be here for myself and call on my resources. Or would you say putting headphones on and say listening to a podcast, like I, I have my phone with me when I'm in the grocery store, I could just plug in my headphones, put on a podcast. Is that me not staying with myself? Is that me leaving? Well, absolutely. That's one of the, one of the, uh, one of the possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. of, nobody, nobody could ever critique you for that because only you have the authority to know what level of pain is going mm -hmm. on here. Okay. So there's no formulaic answer to that. That would be, could be a kind of avoidance strategy, maybe, uh, perhaps, right? If mm -hmm. you, if you could tolerate that experience, um, but there's no reason why you have to tolerate that experience. You could just go, that's it. I've had enough. I'm putting in my headphones and I'm going to listen to something that's going to make me feel wonderful. And you go ahead and do that. But if you really wanted to take the bull by the horns in this situation, your psyche is perceiving, uh, in a creative way, like we've been saying in this interview mm -hmm. and even in a sad experience, you know, in the music therapy world is called ISO, the ISO principle, 
um, that sadness, uh, um, in a way, the inner sadness requires sad music uh, to oversimplify. It's like this spiritus conspiratum uh, alchemical principle of, you know, like cures like. Yeah. And, and in a way, it sounds very paradoxical and strange. You'd think you'd want to have happy music to make the sad person happy, but that's not really the way it works. So the sadness of that, that depressing sadness of that Muzak in the grocery store has something to offer. That dissonance has something to offer to the sadness inside. That's wonderful. I love that. And I, I've also heard you say that the psyche knows how to metabolize sound all of the sounds coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to think of it, like I was saying about a, an auditory digestive system. Mm-hmm. Um, it knows how to turn, to transform raw sound into meaning. So this is true for the anthrophony, which is the human, the world of human sounds, but also the biophony, the world of non-human sounds. I was just wondering if, yeah, if that would apply to this case where I'm in the store, I can't control the music I'm hearing, and I'm really struggling with it. Is my psyche metabolizing it in to my benefit? Or is it kind of, is it beating me up, you know, and, and if it is, just having that ego strength to stay with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Well, it feels like it, it sounds like it feels in that moment of being beaten up by the music. You know, music that you can't control can be a torture technique. It actually is literally in yes, some it places. Is. It literally is, is a torture mm-hmm. technique. It's a way of, uh, of, of really harming people. And, and, uh, and some nation states actually use uh, uncontrolled music as a, as a torture. So yeah, it's, it's very painful because we can't close our ears the way we close our eyes. Uh, and there's something about that we, we, we can't actually, unless we can shut it out, literally, um, you know, our, our, the structure of our, of our bodies, we don't, our ears don't open and close that way. Mm-hmm. So it goes right in. It gets inside. It, can, it feels contaminating to go inside and, and cause this psychological disturbance inside of us. So that feels like being beaten up, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like I said, you know, you can tag out and say, that's it. Put my headphones in and I'm going to blot this out. And, and you have the authority to do that. Um, but if you, if you want to work with it in that moment, the idea of the psychic digestive system, the auditory digestive system might be a helpful frame to even ask oneself, almost like an act of imagination to ask oneself, you know, what am I feeling? And then personify this for yourself. What what is hap- what is this music? What how would I personify this music? What kind of character is this? What character has this quality? Mm-hmm. Do I know this character? Is this a character from a movie or a film or a book or a story or my family um, that I know of that treats me this way that makes me feel this feeling? This would be starting to do some fairly deep work with that sound. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. And one more thing that I'd like to bring up is people who are hard of hearing and can't hear. Um, How does any of this apply to them? Um, You know, I bring this up because when I started doing the episodes about BTS, uh, they were very popular. And I was asked about people who are hard of hearing and can't hear the podcast and people wanted 
transcriptions. And I don't do transcriptions, and I have a pretty harsh stance against them. The podcast exists because I want people to hear analysts speak in their own voice about their work. Mm-hmm. And they are meant to be an accompaniment to the books because mm-hmm. people can access, have access to the books. It can purchase the books and read them. But this is, this is an auditory project. And I didn't want to then turn it into the written word again. And so I had a resistance toward it. And I was attacked pretty severely for not providing that service for the deaf. You know, I I didn't know what to say. And I felt awful about it. But I, I did allow it, the podcast, some of them to be transcribed into other languages. <laughs> but I don't offer transcripts. And I guess what I'm what I was trying to say was that I was being criticized for not offering transcripts of these interviews. And to mm-hmm. me, they're not about that. I'm not, I'm not interested in turning them into words. They're meant mm-hmm. to be heard. So that said, with music therapy, mm-hmm. with Jungian music psychotherapy, what happens with people who are hard of hearing? What it, what it makes me think of right now is um, there's this performer named Evelyn Glennie, who is a world-renowned percussionist um, who plays, I think, with the London Symphony Orchestra. And, all, all you know, she's really, really um, well-known in, in the professional world as a, as a performer and a wonderful percussionist. And she happens to be profoundly deaf. And so she actually says, and, and is incredibly articulate about how she experiences music, And she says that music is actually a specialized form of touch. She says hearing, hearing music is actually a specialized form of touch. And then she, I would recommend for your listeners about this question to really go to Evelyn Glennie um, to explore this. Uh, Go to her website and read some of the things she said about this um, and listen to some of her performances and, and her workshops because she she has the authority, being profoundly deaf and being this uh, wonderful performer and musician, um, to to be this kind of what Jung might call the psychoid uh, realm. You know, she's between inner and outer. She's she's uh, she's this conduit um, between the experience of sound that is beyond um, hearing. You know, beyond hearing in the typical way that uh, mm-hmm. that, that that folks who who hear typically you know hear. Uh, so it's an excellent question. Um, it's an excellent thing to keep in mind as well. Intrapsychically, in the book, I talk about deaf spots, uh, our, our intrapsychic deaf spots, which are kind of like blind spots. You know, we often use that metaphor, something I di- wasn't able to see because I was defended against it. Well, I think that happens in sound in terms of bl- uh, deaf spots as well. And so working with those aspects of ourselves that are deaf that can't hear for a particular reason, can't hear something in particular right now Mm -hmm. for a particular reason. And then we have to find creative ways of experiencing that, that um, are beyond the typical way. And I think folks who are deaf actually have exactly that same challenge in the world and they creatively succeed all the time, having wonderful, alive communities 
that uh, aren't missing anything at all, you know, that, that aren't, uh, you know, that, that have everything that a human needs. <laughs> so um, without this certain kind of neurotypical way of hearing. Um, so that's the way I start to think about it, is that this is not a, an insurmountable obstacle to working. I, I've actually been, I went to a dance once many, many years ago. This just, to re, I just remember this. That was um, a, a deaf dance. <laughs> and the, the um, speakers were cranked up. People had their hands on the speakers and the floor was shaking and it was mostly about feel and vibration. Mm -hmm. But in a way, that's what music is anyway. Music is just vibration of molecules in the air. So in a way, I think Evelyn Glennie's right on when she says it's a specialized form of touch. I like what you said in the book about Nikola Tesla, uh, who said that one could find the secrets of the universe in the domains of energy, frequency, and vibration. And you say, you point out that he might have just as easily been talking about music. Mm -hmm. Since music is basically energy received, frequency perceived, and vibration felt, um, but infinitely more than the sum of its parts. Right. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you wanted to cover? Well, this is one of my favorite topics, so I could talk about it for a long, long time. I, I love uh, uh, exploring these ideas, and I, what's really important to me is to try to frame this in a way that makes sense to people, mm -hmm. which is actually the hardest part. Yes. Because I think some of these ideas um, are, are very new. Um, not right. because I'm so clever for thinking of them, but just for some reason, music as a metaphor, you know, music as an intrapsychic metaphor for the psyche, um, hasn't really occurred to, um, folks in the psychoanalytic community, at, at least as far as I've seen. So, um, I guess what I would like to offer as a final, um, idea here is just the connection between musicking and dreaming that connection might help understand these ideas better. You can generalize everything you know about dreaming to a musical field. Okay. That's a good start. That's a good starting point. And secondly, um, music can be a metaphor for the map of the soul, you know, um, in line with BTS's uh, title and, and Murray Stein's title of his book um, and Jung's idea about the map of the soul and the map of the psyche, that music is really a metaphor, a metaphorical map of the psyche as well. And in the book, I talk about tonality or the central pitch as being the archetype of a home. Um, and that might be another helpful frame for uh, all the things we've been talking to about this in this past hour is that it's um, music is a, can be a metaphor. Musical field can be a metaphor for the map of the psyche um, and the experience of uh, of our psychological development. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I think we covered a lot of ground there, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Craker. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio, and will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or TuneIn.
Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to the Taylor and Francis group, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.